Well, it's been a lot of early mornings in our house over the last number of weeks. I've been um, driving my girls into school early in the morning for 7 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday for gymnastics practice. It's been the big thing in our house over the last month is the girls, three of them, going to school three times a week for gymnastics practice. The, the tryout is tomorrow in terms of whether they're going to attempt to you know, go to competition. And so I asked the, the girls the other day, I said, so are you all trying out to, to go competitive with the school? And two of the girls said yes, but, but one of my girls said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to try out to compete. And I asked her, I said, how, how come you're not going to try to compete? And she said, well, she said, I just am discouraged about how bad I am at gymnastics. I said, well, honey, you just started. This is your first year. This is the first time you've ever tried this. She said, no, this isn't, I didn't just start. I've been doing gymnastics for years. Now, I know everywhere that I've driven my daughter over the last number of years, and I know I've never driven her to anything gymnastic-y over the last number of years. So I was like, what, what do you mean you've been doing gymnastics for years? She said, well, I've been practicing in the basement, trying to teach myself the different gymnastics moves. And I said, oh, honey, I said, that's not how it works. There's a, a core set of fundamentals to gymnastics. And if you don't master those fundamentals in the right way, you're, you're just never going to get good at gymnastics. Truth be told, that, that's true in a lot of areas of life. That's true about learning music, that if you don't master the technique and the theory, you're just not going to be able to learn to do music well. That's true in math. If you don't master the fundamentals... You're not going to be able to do math well. It's true in faith. But there are some core fundamentals to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And if, we, and if we don't get those fundamentals right, however we construct our life of faith, it's going to contain distortions that has us, in the words of my daughter, being worse at following Jesus than we otherwise would normally be. That's why we're taking these two weeks leading into Easter to talk about the two core fundamentals of the Christian faith, the two things that need to be understood for somebody to follow Jesus well, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. Because these are the things that we have to, we have to get these right in our head if we're going to understand what the Christian faith is all about. So here's what I want to do this morning as we talk about the crucifixion. I want to structure the talk around really the, the two things that Jesus accomplishes on the cross, which are really two of the fundamental misunderstandings that in my experience people have with respect to the Christian faith and what the cross of Jesus was all about. Well, one, one of the, so the first fundamental misunderstanding that uh, in my experience people have when it comes to understanding the cross is rooted in a, in a telling or an understanding of what the Christian story is all about, what the cross is all about, that is almost true, but just distorted enough to become fundamentally untrue about what Jesus was all about. And, the, and the, that understanding of the cross goes like this. That humanity, human beings, are fundamentally depraved creatures. That we're that we're sinful to the core and that we have inflicted all manner of perversity and depravity on the earth throughout the course of human history. And, and to be honest, that part is, is really mostly true. <laughs> that you, all you, you have to do is watch the news. Somebody's once said 
that um, human depravity is the only teaching of the Christian faith that comes with empirical evidence. Just pay attention. But the story goes like this. The human beings are sinful to the core, and God is as mad as heck about it. And he's not going to take it anymore. God's tired of having his uh, dignity offended by people who ignore him. God is tired of of, uh, the rebellion of people who are flagrantly disobeying his commandments. God is tired of people who refuse to worship him and obey him and who instead ignore him and mistreat him and so on. And so God wants his pound of flesh. God cannot leave sin like this unpunished. And so God is looking to punish humanity because of their sin. Now Jesus, according to this way of understanding the cross, Jesus loves humanity. And he wants to see human beings forgiven. And so Jesus kind of comes in between God and humanity. Kind of like an older brother who who steps in between a, a scared sibling and a raging parent and says, no, no, no. I'll take it and who takes and absorbs into themselves all that anger and all of that rage. Once God has vented all of his anger, once he's gotten it all out and he's calmed down, he's done, and he gathers his kids around him, and there's peace in the home. That's the the telling of the story of the cross that I think represents a fundamental misunderstanding, because it's a telling that's rooted in the venting of God's anger in punishment on human sin. It kind of comes up, if you've been around, we sometimes sing a song that I'm actually getting a little bit uncomfortable with because one of the lines is, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. God gave full vent to his anger in response to human sinfulness. And truth be told, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus did on the cross, of the whole story. Um, And you know that it is because of a few things that are inconsistent with what the Bible teaches us about who God is, right? On the the one hand, in that understanding of the cross, you have uh, God the Father who is at odds in terms of his agenda with God the Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father is interested in punishing humanity and his fundamental posture is wrath. Whereas God the Son is interested in forgiving humanity and his fundamental posture is love. And one thing we know for sure is that Jesus is God. So Jesus and God can't have two opposing agendas. Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit do everything in unity with each other. And they do everything in love. Another fundamental distortion is the way that that telling of the story distorts what God is really like. In 1 John chapter 4, it says this. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God, God's fundamental characteristic is love. And the coming of Jesus and the dying on the cross of Jesus is an expression of God's love, not his anger. That telling of the story assumes that God's fundamental characteristic is actually his holiness. That God is so holy and so pure that he can't even tolerate sin. He just needs to punish sin. And and the truth is God's fundamental characteristic is not holiness. It's love. 
In fact, holiness doesn't even mean purity of character. Holiness just means to be set apart. And the thing that sets God apart from every other being that exists is his unconditional love. It's his love that's his holiness. And he's holy because of his love. The other thing that's weird about that telling of the story is that that God is not forgiving. Right? God, in that telling of the story, just wants his pound of flesh. He's, he's angry about sin, and he wants to punish sin, and he's going to get his pound of flesh. It doesn't matter if he takes it from you or if he takes it from Jesus. It doesn't matter. Once God gets his pound of flesh, he relents. Well, that's not forgiveness. That's vengeance. That's getting back at the people who hurt you. And that's not love. I read a blogger recently who said, Jesus didn't die on the cross to rescue you from your sin. Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from God. And that is fundamentally untrue. That is a distorted version of the story. Here's how I would tell that same story. And I think it makes a huge difference in how we understand the cross. The world is a fundamentally broken place, a fundamentally sinful place. And I concur with that reality because we're surrounded by it all the time. In local news, that story recently of of a man from this area who who killed his seven-year-old stepson. We're surrounded by stories of communities that commit atrocities against other communities, whether it's ISIS uh, in the Middle East or NATO bombers killing civilians in the Middle East. We're surrounded by it at a cultural level, just embedded in our culture systemically in racism and bigotry. And it's something that is real in each one of our lives as well. The Bible says in Romans 3, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been something other than what God created us to be. You've you've lived it in the little stories of the way that you've loved or not loved the people, your loved ones, the people who are closest to you. In the choices you've made when nobody else is watching, you've been a part of the story of sin in the ways that you even unknowingly have been complicit through you know, our Western consumption mentality in things like a climate change and slavery in other parts of the world. We've participated in the brokenness of the world. And the fundamental Christian story is that God wants to fix the brokenness in the world. And the cross is all about God making right the things that we've made wrong. But here's the thing. In order to make something right, you can't just offer forgiveness. Forgiveness is not enough to make something right. right? My girls, uh, I have four of them. And they are best frenemies all the time. Um, And I'll watch the way they fight and reconcile, right? One of them will just kick the other one because they're angry. And the other one will start to cry. And I'll say, honey, you can't do that, right? Go, you know, make up. Apologize and make up. And they'll say, I'm sorry. And the other one will say, I forgive you. And they hug and they walk away. And I have two reactions. I think I love that they were able to reconcile their relationship. And somehow this seems unjust. That one daughter kicked another one. And it didn't cost her anything. When, when you perpetuate a wrong, the rectification of that, making that right demands a restitution. It demands, it costs you something to make it right again. If my daughter had broken her sister's toy, I would expect her to buy another one. There's a cost to making things right. 
When you violate somebody's dignity, it should cost you something to restore it again. Right? Some uh, places run uh, victor, victim offender reconciliation programs that connect people who perpetrate crimes and people who have been victimized and they put them in the same room and they and there's an apology and a coming of understanding and I'm sorry and a reconciliation and then the other person goes to prison right there's a cost but here's the thing how do you tally up the cost to make right all the things that you've made wrong in the world how do you do that you've been a perpetuator a perpetrator and a participant in evil, in sin, in brokenness in our world. And how you can't even account, you can't even tally all the ways in which that's been true. Because it's been true in ways that you're not even aware of. I have probably hurt and offended people by things that I've said even in this talk that I'm unaware of. But even if you could be aware of them all, how could you tally them all and figure out what the cost would be to make all of those things right? And even if you could figure that out, None of us would have access to the resources to pay the price to make restitution, to make right the things that we've made wrong. Now take that concept and magnify it on a global scale across humanity throughout human history. How do you possibly make right? What is the cost and who pays the price to make right everything that's been made wrong? The only answer can be Jesus. We are fundamentally unable to make right the things we've made wrong. But Jesus comes and does that for us. I'm going to read that verse again from Romans 3, but I'm going to read the ones that follow. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified, in other words, made right, freely by his grace through the redemption of, that's to pay the price, that came by Christ Jesus. Listen to this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Another way to translate that is his justice. This is what this verse says. In order to execute justice, in order to make right the things that we have made wrong, God sacrificed himself to pay the price that makes things right that we make wrong. God himself showed up as a human being, entered human history from the outside and subjected himself to death on a cross as a way of absorbing the personal cost to, to make right all of the things we've made wrong. Not because we deserved it. Not because we'd earned it by all the good things that we'd done, by all the religious things that we'd done. The Bible says that um, even our goodness is tainted by pride. It's tainted by hypocrisy. It's tainted by credit seeking. We're bad at being good. We don't earn it. It's a gift that God gives us for free. And then it says we receive this gift by faith, by Believing that Jesus' death accomplishes this. By trusting in Jesus to do this for us. By reaching out to him saying, God, would you apply the death of Jesus to the sin and the brokenness in my life? Would you, would you make right the things that I've made wrong? And thirdly, manifesting that in faithfully living out 
the character of Jesus in our life in increasing ways, in increasing ways, filling the world with less and less brokenness and sin and more and more of unconditional love. That's what Jesus came to do, to pay the price, to be the sacrifice that pays the price to make right the things that have been wrong in order to satisfy the justice of God. And he did it as a free gift for anyone who will receive it by faith. The Bible describes this using a few metaphors. It talks about forgiveness. It's a financial uh, metaphor that talks about the cancellation of a debt Um, in order to restore right relationship with the bank, with the debt provider, and to make available all the resources of the bank to the person who was in debt formerly. This is what Jesus did. He, He canceled all of what we owed by absorbing the cost in and of himself, which is what a bank does when they cancel your mortgage. No, no bank has ever done that for me, but I assume that would be true. He absorbs the cost in himself, which reconciles our relationship and makes everything that he has, has and is available to us. The Bible talks not just about forgiveness, it talks about being justified. It's a legal metaphor for when the judge rules in your favor and says, by your, ob- your obligation according to the law has been fulfilled. We're square. You're free to go. The Bible uses the metaphor of welcome. Um, it says that in Jerusalem, there was a temple. And the holiest room of the temple was called the holiest of holies. And only the high priest, the holiest person in Israel, could go into the holy of holies. And they could only go into the holy of holies on the holiest day of the year, the day of atonement. Um, That room where God's presence was said to dwell was separated by a curtain from all of the rest of the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that on the moment Jesus died, that curtain was ripped in two as a symbolic way of God throwing the door to his presence open and saying, you're welcome to come in and I'm coming out to be with all of the rest of you. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He becomes the sacrifice that pays the price to satisfy the justice of God to make what we've made wrong right as a free gift to us, to be received by faith. Here's the second thing Jesus does on the cross, and it comes with a second misunderstanding. Um, People will sometimes say to me, I don't understand how the death of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago can make any difference to me today, right? Uh, We talked last week, uh, for those of you who weren't here, about how Jesus you know, historians generally agree, was a flesh and blood human being. 2,000 years ago, a man was born by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived for 30 some odd years and died as an enemy of the state, crucified by the Roman Empire. By all accounts, and the accounts that we have are in the Bible, this was a remarkable human being. If half the stories in the Bible are true, or if all the stories in the Bible are half true, Jesus is still a remarkable human being. I, I believe they're true. He's someone who exudes the presence of love. He's someone who cares for the poor. He's someone who brings mental and emotional and physical healing into people's lives. He's somebody who welcomes and embraces the marginalized and ignored women and children and foreigners. He's someone who hangs out with the lowlifes of society and and, 
uh, launches them on this trajectory of transformation. He was this incredible moral teacher, a spiritual leader, an inspirational figure. Some consider him to be a, a political populist who was leading a nonviolent uh, rebellion against the empire of Rome whose life was tragically cut short by the cross, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time or said the wrong stuff to the wrong people or created the wrong impression by making the wrong choices or whatever it is. But Jesus' life in his early 30s was cut short when he was crucified on the cross as an enemy of the state. And people say, I just don't understand what difference that makes in my life. Um, it's similar to uh, me saying, uh, well, I'll say it this way, because I, I had this conversation with someone just this past week, and my answer to them was, the difference that it makes is that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually fundamentally altered the nature of reality and rerouted the trajectory of human history. The world was never the same after Jesus died on the cross. And this is what I mean by that. This was the analogy I was going to share. It would be like me saying, 53 years ago, in a small town in Virgil, two people, Irv Kraus and Evelyn Dick, my parents, stood on a stage in a small church in front of a religious official and spoke the shortest conversation, the meaningful conversation that two human beings share with each other, and that is, I do, and I do. But I don't understand how that event with those two people 53 years ago makes any difference in my life today. It was just two people having a conversation. And you would rightly respond to me by saying, no, you fundamentally misunderstood what happened. When they shared that small conversation and said, I do and I do, they actually created something that never existed before. They fundamentally altered the shape of their reality. They created a reality that did not exist prior, and that's the reality of their marriage. And in fact, your entire life is possible only because of that moment that happened between two people, two young people, 53 years ago. That's what it's like. That's kind of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, he fundamentally alters the nature of reality. And here's how. The Bible talks about sin in two different ways. One that we've already talked about. All of the individual choices that we make that implicate us in the brokenness of the world. The stuff for which we need forgiveness. The stuff that Jesus died to make right again. To injustice pay the price for. The other way the Bible talks about sin. Talks about sin with a capital S. Sin as a power that controls what happens in the world. A power that compels people to make choices that they otherwise wouldn't normally make. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Sin is my master and I am a slave. I am compelled to do what sin orders me to do and I hardly have a choice in the matter says, for I know that good does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, left to my own devices. I know I'm going to make bad choices. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Insert testimony about the way that you treat the people you care about the most. 
Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What Paul is saying is that left to our own devices, our lives are under control of an alien power that compels us and bends our soul to making the choices that we would otherwise not normally want to make in our best selves, in our best moments. That's not just true of us at an individual level. That's true uh, of families. There are families that are under the control and the power of sin. It's true of communities. It's true of institutions. It's true of governments. It's true of corporations. It's true of schools. It's true of banks. It's true of labor unions. It can be true of churches and true of religions. There is a power at work in the world that is bending humanity to make choices that are destructive and hurtful. And the story of the Bible is the story of God's war against the power of sin. You kind of get glimpses of it here and there. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says there's a battle going on, and you got to be ready to participate in it. And it's not against other people. Your enemy is not the flesh and blood human being who's hurting you or making your life hard. Your true enemy is the power of sin that is bending that person's soul in their life to make choices that are hurtful and destructive to you which is not to minimize their responsibility for their own choices Paul is just saying the greater enemy is the power of sin at work in the world and here's the thing on the cross Jesus dies and wins the decisive battle against the power of evil in the world. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this, God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's what we talked about before. God paid the price to make things right. This is the second thing God does. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them By the cross. On the cross, Jesus defeats the power of sin at work in the world. Theologians have used the metaphor of D-Day to understand this. That what happens on D-Day, June 6, 1944, Nazi uh, Germany has taken control of most of Europe. And most of Europe is under their control. Slaves to Nazi Germany, so to speak. Unable to control their own destiny. Unable to free themselves from the power of Nazism. What does it take to free them from that power? It takes an incursion into enemy territory by somebody who's coming from the outside who is stronger than the power that's in control in order to defeat them and to beat back the power of Nazi Germany until the Reich falls apart nearly a year later. This, theologians say, is what Jesus did on the cross. We live under the power of sin under the control of the enemy who bends us to do things we wouldn't otherwise normally choose to do. But here comes Jesus invading enemy territory from the outside with a power in him greater than the power of sin. And it is the power of unconditional love. This is where the metaphor breaks down. Because 
When the Allied forces invade Normandy on D-Day, they fight fire with fire. When Jesus invades human history, he, fired, he fights evil with unconditional love. Instead of fighting back against the power of sin, he allows himself to be hung on the cross and allows sin to unleash its fury on him. Jesus responds. He fights by laying down his life in love. And the power of that unconditional love breaks the back of the power of sin and the course of human history is changed so that human history is now being governed by love more than it is being governed by evil. Now, obviously, when the forces land on D-Day, they don't end the war. There's a year worth of fighting left to do. Jesus' death on the cross, his unconditional love, didn't end the power of evil in the world. Human history has been fighting against evil with the love of God for 2,000 years and pushing it back. But God is winning the war against evil. And he's rescuing us in the process. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness... And brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Who has rescued us from slavery to the power of sin. By forgiving our sins. The second thing. Rescuing us. The first thing. Forgiving us. That's what God does. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He doesn't just pay the price to make right what we have made wrong. He simultaneously sets us and the whole world free from the power of sin that's at work in the world. The Bible uses metaphors like redemption, this one, which means to pay the price to buy a slave's freedom. We used to be slaves to the power of sin. But Jesus died on the cross and paid the price. So now we're free to not choose to live that way anymore, but choose to live by the power of unconditional love, by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's winning the war against the power of evil. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now the Bible says we're slaves to Jesus and anybody who's a slave to Jesus is the freest person who's ever lived. The Bible uses the metaphor of reconciliation. Not just that our relationship with God has been restored because of the forgiveness of Jesus, but that our life is now being conformed to what God always envisioned our lives would be. We are being restored to the will of God for our lives, which is lives that are filled with loving God with all that we have and loving everybody else as much as we love ourselves. Jesus says that's the whole ballgame. The Bible uses metaphors like adoption. We used to be slaves to evil over here, but now God says, no, you're not slaves anymore. I'm adopting you as sons and daughters into my family. You become a part of what I am. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He pays the price that I owe to make right for me all of what I've made wrong in the world. And not just for me, for the sin of all of humanity, for all of human history, for free, by grace, out of love, he pays my debt for me. And I just have to receive that from him in faith, by putting my faith in him. But more than that, he simultaneously defeats the power of sin in my life. 
so that I don't have to continue to be the person that I was before. My life can be increasingly governed by the power of God's unconditional love rather than being governed by the power of sin. And not just for me, for the entire world. That the world itself can become more of the place that God dreamed the world would be because we are becoming more the people God has created us to be. That is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And if we get that vision right, if we get a hold of those core fundamentals, if we understand how the love of God was poured out for us by Jesus on the cross, that's the starting point to figuring out what it would mean to spend our lives in unconditional love, giving up of ourselves to serve him in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we think about the gift that you gave, the sacrifice that you made, the love that you poured out in Jesus. How do we even begin to process what you've done? That you've wrapped your arms around all that we've made wrong in the world and absorbed the cost of making it right into yourself to create justice in the world and forgiveness for us. And then you broke the back of the power of sin in our lives and in our world and are setting us free to become more and more people whose lives are governed by unconditional love than by the power of sin. That we can be fundamentally different because of who you are and what Jesus did on the cross. How do we even begin to process this? Would you help us this Easter season begin to allow those truths to settle deeply into our soul? and then erupt from our soul into the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.